Welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast about the latest news and research from Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Guy Collender. Just days after Barack Obama's second presidential inauguration, it is timely to reflect on his achievements so far and the challenges facing the US in his second term. We'll hear the views of Birkbeck's Professor Robert Singh, the author of a recent book about Obama. But first, we begin with a subject we have all experienced but can often struggle to describe, pain. I'm joined by Birkbeck historian Professor Joanna Burke to find out what this sensation was like in the past and also to hear about what happened at a major recent symposium about pain. Joanna, thank you for joining us in the studio. It's really lovely being here. Could you begin by explaining the scope of your research into pain? Yeah, I mean, what the Birkbeck Pain Project seeks to do is to actually explore how ordinary people, I mean, people like you and me, how we actually experienced pain in the past. It actually goes from a really quite a long time period. We start in the 18th century, beginning of the 18th century, and actually we go right to today, right to the present. And we really are asking a very, very simple question. How have people in the past written spoken about pain and what does that tell us about the way people have experienced pain in the past and what have you discovered about their experiences of pain what sort of things have been written down have been shared well I think there are a number of things that I find really exciting about this the first thing is that this idea that pain somehow is unspeakable and and is silenced etc is actually not true when you look in the past you can see people in very, very creative ways trying to communicate what they are experiencing, what their body is actually feeling. So I think that is interesting in itself. But of course, being an historian, what we're interested in doing is looking at change over time. So how do the languages that people grasp at in order to communicate their pain not only, by the way, to others, but also to themselves, how do those languages change? And that's been the really interesting thing. So what have you discovered about how people experience pain and what sort of ailments are we talking about back through to the 18th century? The way people have experienced pain has changed really dramatically. I mean, it makes a difference if you believe that your pain has been caused by an infuriated God, or if you think it's the result of a lifetime of bad habits, or if you think that it's due to the ebb and flow of humours inside the body, or if you believe that indeed it's just an invasion by a germ. So it makes a difference, a sort of ideological meaning that that you're giving to your pain. Has there been a significant shift from, say, a more religious society to a more secular one today? Yes. It would be really difficult to overestimate the importance of um, religion in people's understanding of pain. Um, And this is at every single level. So in the past, when people believed that pain was there, uh, was inflicted by by a god, um, it was something that was meant to teach you something, it was meant to teach you a lesson, it was meant to reform your life, Um, then of course the way you are supposed to respond or act when you're in severe pain is of course in a much more passive way. You submit to the rod of Christ. You, you, you lay down under the cross and you and plead for mercy and plead for forgiveness. And of course, that is a very, very, very different way of comporting yourself in pain 
um, compared with today, for example, when, you know, we're supposed to be fighting pain. Pain is an evil in every single way. It is something to be fought, you know, all guns blazing. So very militaristic way we think about pain. And that is a very, very important shift. And then, of course, we have all the medical technology now, which we didn't in those days, many more opportunities to fight pain. Yeah, medical technology is an interesting one because actually um, what we find when we look at very modern society, you know, 21st century, is a very unequal um, application or treatment of pain. So even today, we have very, very good evidence that shows that certain groups of pain patients are treated very differently. So for example, children are given much less pain relief release than, than, than adults. Um, minorities are undertreated for their pain. In other words, their pain in a sense doesn't matter as much. Um, to the doctors, to the medical profession. So we see a great undertreatment of pain, despite the fact that we actually have the pharmaceuticals and the technologies to actually eradicate a lot of pain. There is still um, people who are suffering out there who are not being given adequate pain relief. And you were involved in organising the recent symposium called Pain and Its Meanings, a collaboration between the Birkbeck Pain Project and the Wellcome Collection. What were the insights from the event? What we sought to do, this was a really great two-day event, um, what we sought to do was actually get together people who don't usually talk to each other. So we got together clinicians, we got a sociologist, um, obviously historians, um, a literary um, specialist, um, a filmmaker, a poet, a musician, So uh, all, of, all of whom are really passionately interested and specialists in some senses on pain but actually they don't talk to each other much so we got them in the same room and we actually got them uh, again with an audience a very very interesting um, audience of clinicians and general public and and academics um, thrown into a room and actually forced to talk to each other and it was really very very interesting because we actually discovered that we have a lot in common um, and it was very very fruitful to be able to say well look in my discipline this is what we are finding in relation to pain what's happening in yours how do these two things relate to each other and so what we need is actually to have conversations between specialists in those different fields in order to really help Help patients in pain, or indeed people in pain, even if they don't see themselves as patients, um, deal with pain, cope with pain. And indeed, it's actually equally important that these disciplines, history, sociology, etc., actually hear patients speak. Um, so one of the very interesting parts of that symposium was actually you know, patients in the audience saying, well, hang on here, <laughs> you know, this is my perspective. And I think there is a problem still within our um, hospitals, within our clinics, about you know, not, not hearing or not listening sufficiently to the actual sufferers. It's so much easier, I think, for, for doctors and, um, to sort of send away tests and to go with, with what the tests say, as opposed to sitting down to the with the person who is suffering and saying, well, tell me. Tell me about your life. Tell me about how this pain is affecting you. Let's work out something that is going to alleviate your pain, you as an individual. Joanna Burke, Professor of History from Birkbeck's Department of History, Classics and Archaeology. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us.
I'm Bryony Merritt and today I'm talking to Professor Robert Singh. Professor Singh is an expert on American politics and US foreign policy and teaches undergraduate and postgraduate level in Birkbeck's Department of Politics. His latest book, Barack Obama's Post-American Foreign Policy, The Limits of Engagement, was published in 2012. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us, Professor Singh. Now, your latest book looks particularly at Obama's record in foreign policy during the first four years of his presidency. What were the main achievements of the Obama administration during the first term, and what are the foreign policy challenges that they now face? I think in terms of achievement, um, much of what Obama has done has really been to reverse the unpopularity that America experienced under George W. Bush. So, with the crucial exception of the Muslim world, he's really re-established uh, respect for American leadership. Uh, and the notion that America has a positive role to play, particularly through the use of diplomacy and, and soft power. Um, beyond that, I think there are some substantive accomplishments in terms of, for example, um, arms reductions with Russia, um, with managing thus far to avoid um, dipping back into a global recession in terms of the financial crisis that he inherited. And also in terms of, for example, tightening sanctions on Iran without resorting to military action, uh, and that's been fairly effective so far. However, having said all of that, uh, I think that there are a number of challenges now confronting him in his second term, which are, are deeply problematic. Uh, the Russian reset, for example, has really um, gone backwards since Putin was re-elected uh, as president. Relations with China are extremely tense, and although Obama is supposed to have pivoted America towards Asia, it's questionable as to how much substance there really is there. And the Chinese certainly are very suspicious that Washington is attempting to contain China's rise. I think also in terms of the Arab Spring, uh, the Obama administration really has had um, a very confused, even schizophrenic, um, response in terms of what America's interests actually are. And then I suppose finally um, the the attempt to advance the peace process was really ditched after 18 months and doesn't look likely to be resuscitated very, very soon. Obama's also had some very high profile domestic issues to confront, particularly over the last couple of months. Um, so from his pledge to tackle gun crime following the shooting at a primary school in Connecticut, to the protracted negotiations about the fiscal cliff deal, which prompted Obama to say that he has now had enough of such confrontations. Do you believe that Obama stands a realistic chance of achieving change in the way that Congress negotiates during his second term? And what other areas do you think will pose the greatest domestic challenges over the next four years? It's, it's difficult to see how really Obama does actually make a significant shift in terms of, of the economic picture just given the polarised nature of his relations with the Republicans in Congress. And normally what happens um, for a president in a second term is that whatever limited political capital they start out with um, dissipates very quickly, I mean, certainly within six months. Um, you also expect that, that his party will take further losses in the midterm elections in 2014. So while it's possible to imagine that something like, for instance, immigration reform could advance because the Republicans took such a hit with Latinos that they have an incentive to compromise there. When it comes to um, the fiscal cliff, really what seems to be happening is simply they're pushing back, kicking the can down the road rather than actually resolving it. 
And Obama's problem there is not just the Republicans' reluctance to embrace any kind of significant tax increases, but also the fact that his own party doesn't want to take any significant cuts to entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. It's difficult to see how the compromise comes through, given that the parties are so far apart. And I think on top of that, the fact that Obama is seemingly starting off with a very ambitious agenda, um, not just on the economic front, but also gun control, as you said, immigration reform, possibly climate change. There's an awful lot that he's seeking to do, and it's difficult to see how he can really exploit what limited capital he has got to achieve more than one or two things. Thank you very much for those insights. Professor Singh has written an article exploring the divisions within US politics in the latest BBK magazine, which was published at the beginning of January. To download a copy of the magazine, visit www.bbk.ac.uk forward slash BBK magazine. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. For more information about Birkbeck's news, research and courses, visit www.bbk.ac.uk. Thank you.